Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I didn't win the 1995 Players Ball Pimp of the Year, <laughs> did I? <laughs> you know what, Anna? I think you could have. That's all I'm, all I'm saying. There. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I ain't been to church in a while, but something's up. Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of... The Foucauldian Panopticon. And dissonance-reducing consumption. Today, we'll be talking about They Cloned Tyrone, which is a Netflix-only movie, Dan. It was just released last month. That's right. It was released in theaters briefly. I wonder oh. why. Do you <laughs> think that there might be a reason that next April or so, we would be hearing about this again? Possibly. This is not quite what you would say Oscar bait, but it is kind of mm. Oscar bait. Like, it, it has the right elements. Anyway, they cloned Tyrone. I liked it. Dan didn't like it so much. In the next few weeks, we will be talking about something I think we both liked, <laughs> enjoyed, at least. There's kind of a difference. <laughs> yes, that, that's an important <laughs> distinction. What we're going to be talking about, the Meg. And then Meg 2, the trench. I didn't realize it had a subtitle. We have <laughs> lots of ideas, always taking suggestions. One of the best places that you can make a suggestion is on our Discord. Our lively mm -hmm. Discord. I was going to say our very lively Discord with a mm -hmm. how many? Like it has like two hundred members, I think. Something I like that. I believe so. Yes, not all of them are quite active though. No. But but we have enough. We have a diversity of voices on that Discord, and of course, the way that you can join the that only Discord, way. The only, the way. only way. You could try to bribe us. It's not really going to work very well, but. A much cheaper and much more efficient way is to just become a patron of the podcast. If you go to patreon.com slash space the nation, you can become a patron. And for as little as $3 a month, you'll get access to the Discord. You'll get early access to the podcast. You'll get access to our monthly AUAs, our newsletter, and merch. Uh, yeah, right no, some, yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. And you can always reach us via social media, although that's a little trickier than it used to be. Dan, are you it's on like the Twitter at all? I mean, I'm sorry. Are you on X at all? And isn't that a fun <laughs> thing to ask people? Dan, have you been I, hopping? <laughs> <laughs> I am... Uh, I can't say that, Anna. I can't say I'm on X. No, yeah, that doesn't some, make any goddamn sense. To, like clip it and like distribute it or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, that's not really going to work <laughs> very you, well. Are you active on the artist formerly known as Twitter? I'm active on Twitter once was. Mm. Yes. Not active per se, but I certainly, you know, consume it. So if you want to catch me there, you can. You can also catch both Anna and I on Blue Sky if you are there. I am at Dan Dresner. She is at Anna Marie Cox. We're also both on Mastodon. Same handles, although a little mm -hmm. more complicated. And we are doing other things. Anna, I believe you are on Instagram. I you... am very active on Instagram. And if people okay. would like pictures of my pets, that Which... is where you need to go. I cannot stress how cute the pictures of Anna's pets are. They are very cute. She also has a website, www.annamariecox.com. Sometimes um, the jokes are going to get old, but I guess not yet. And then, it's, nope. you know what happens when a joke gets old? Keep doing it. And then it gets funny. Again. <laughs> exactly. It's a secret of comedy. And I also am a columnist for TNR and NBC and perhaps some other acronyms in the future. Mm -hmm. Working on a lot of stuff in the fall, I will start my writing workshop again. And you can go to my website, which is spelled the same way as my name, but pronounced, pronounced differently. Cox. Yes. yes. And Dan, you got anything else you want to plug up top? Besides being on X, sure. Um, <laughs> you said I, it. You said it. <laughs> it shows how secure I feel in my position that I can say that, and it's, no one's going to be able to get me into trouble. I am also on Threads at Real Dan Dresner. I have a Substack called Dresner's World that I write usually every other day about matters of international politics and and U.S. foreign policy and so forth. I also write occasionally for Politico. I do book reviews for foreign policy. And in the fall, I will be teaching again at the Fletcher School, which I'm looking forward to. Yeah, but not everyone can take that course. True. My writing workshop is open to the masses. It's for everyone. <laughs> okay, yeah. fair enough. Dimmable. Yeah. Anna, how are you? <laughs> don't have to get into some fancy school. <laughs> yeah. 
No admission. I'm not going to apologize for the fanciness of my school, Ada. You know why it's fancy? Because we teach some important shit there. All right. right. That, in fact, should be the motto. The Fletcher School. We teach important shit. Nationalize the universities, Dan. All right. Moving on. (laughs) Oh, God. Dan, how are you? (laughs) I am good, Ada. You know, I believe our listeners will be hearing this in mid-August. I am, you know, coping with the summer. The summer up here has not been too bad. I don't think it's been like quite as it has been in Texas. No heat dome? No heat dome as of yet. In fact, there's a decent chance that the listeners will be hearing this. I will be on vacation in Martha's Vineyard, which will be quite lovely. So I'm not going to Say hi to Obama. That. I will. I will. You know, his book uh, recommendations suck. <laughs> I'll be like, hey, Obama, I got some news for you. Got some news for you right here. I will not be arrested by Secret Service. Anna, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. Listeners may know that I welcomed a new member of the family recently, Bram Stoker, the black kitty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's a kitten. He's fucking adorable. And he's gotten a lot of attention because of that, because he's a kitten. And also he's active a lot. He's in his phase right now where he's just like, what can I destroy? Like, let me just try and touch all the things with my claws and see if they fall apart with the claws, you know? The kitty is conducting an experiment. Yeah, it is, is, it is. It's, it's like <laughs> this movie, yes. He's exploring his environment. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I've been paying a lot of attention to him and I've sensed that Molly Murder Kitten is a little... Threatened? I, no, I would say pissed. <laughs> <laughs> I would say she's angry. She's been spending a lot of time by herself. She's been like removing herself from the situation. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, just, I'm picturing the. I'm picturing Molly going. I'm breaking up with you. I don't need you. <laughs> and today was the first day since I've gotten Bram. I was working this morning, and Molly got in my lap, and Aww. that is a first in like a few weeks. So, I, I think. She might be kind of over it. She is so funny, though. She has resting bitch face for sure, mm-hmm. and which people might have seen, actually. <laughs> and so when she and Bram play and they play a lot, it doesn't look like they're playing because she looks mad, right? Oh, but it's definitely playing, to be clear. Well, there, there's no fur flying, so they have right. to be playing. Okay. If they were not playing, there would be drifts of cat hair like okay. in my house, and there aren't. So good. Families coming together. Actually, I'll add has no opinion about Bram or low opinion. No, not low. Indifferent. He's like, come on. Another one? Oh. Really? But Bram actually is- gives off the vibe of like, I'm too old for this shit. Basically. Yeah, that is, that's exactly what it is. But Bram, like any little brother is totally <laughs> into Exley and Aww. has followed him around and will sleep next to him. Exley does Aww. not sleep next to Bram, but Bram will come find Exley and sleep next to him. So that's actually adorable. That's what you can get on my Instagram, Dan. That's just like a sampling of the kind of stories that you will see on Instagram. Probably time to start talking about our subject matter. Right. So why are we doing this? I think one reason is that there's not exactly a ton of content in the sci-fi slash black exploitation genre. Although certainly, you know, African-American sci-fi is is having a moment. Would that be a safe statement? I would say it's more than having a moment. It was having a moment, and now it's kind of fully part of the conversation, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, yeah. I would say a black-made genre in general is kind of more. I, we can probably thank Jordan Peele yeah, partially. And John Boyega, because he mm-hmm. has been in Attack of the Block and, of course, Star Wars. We're going to have a whole discussion about him, though. <laughs> yes, we're gonna, we'll put that to one side. We one area where Anna and I are in absolute agreement on in this film is that we thought John Boyega was amazing in it. So just in the first two know. minutes of the movie, yeah. already he, he's yeah. really really good. And it very few people are huge fans of the you know most recent Star Wars movies. I think, mm-hmm. but you will dislike them even more when you realize what a waste <laughs> they've made yes. of him. I will add this had a ton of positive buzz coming in. Mm-hmm. And I think also we're, you know, like we try to have a diverse showing in the stuff mm-hmm. we talk about. And this seemed like just an ideal thing for us. Yeah. There is there is definitely a critique of capitalism. Spoiler alert. <gasps> also, I think some pretty good IR. 
There is some IR. Yeah, there's some deep IR critiques in here. Yeah. Yes. So will this podcast ruin this movie for people, Dan? How big are you into conspiracies, Anna? And that's a question that you're going to need to answer for the watching this, this film. Let's put it that way. There's just a small touch of conspiracy theorizing in the film. I would say the more you are into conspiracy theories, I mean this sincerely, the less this podcast will ruin it for you because nothing will then surprise you in the film. If, on the other hand, not as much into conspiracy theorizing, watch the film before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you are not up on your history of black people in America, like, <laughs> you might be surprised. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There is, if you know that history pretty well, that's another reason the, mm -hmm. the, the twists and turns of this movie aren't such, aren't such twists and turns. And I'm going to argue, I think that's intentional. I do yeah. think that the final boss or next to final boss reveal at the end mm. is a little bit of a surprise. It's not Touch. exactly yeah. where I thought the movie was going. And I, I don't know if it's my place to say that's a misstep. But I will we look will... forward to talking about it because it's an interesting thing to to do at the end of mm -hmm. this particular film to take that step that i agree with and it does it does provoke some interesting conversation yeah. well let's get to the story behind the story anna to use the uh argot of the film how did the powers that be allow this film to get made well the powers that be were very pleased with the previous production of the filmmaker. This was largely made by Jewel Taylor, co-written by Tony Retter, Rett, Rettmeyer. Rettmeyer, I believe. Yes. Yep. And, and on Jewel Taylor's resume are two films that if you were a film executive, you would be like, yes, let's have that man make another movie. Creed Two and Space Jam, A New Legacy. Okay, so, yeah, fair enough. You'd be like, sure, make something, go ahead. And it was also on the 2019 Blacklist, which sounds like it would be something that it is not it is a <laughs> compilation of the best films not made yet in hollywood which i'm who knows maybe there's a representation over representation of people of color on that list and it mm. happens to be run by this really cool guy named franklin leonard who started it on his own and now it's like a whole thing they have scholarships it's official. Oh wow, really? Yeah. Scholarships, that's pretty cool. Okay. Yeah, they get they they get underrepresented people into writers rooms. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. So, he had a lot of uh clout going mm -hmm. in. And he had some interesting ideas that it started not where you would think though. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Keep His, going. The origin was he really loved Scooby-Doo. And <laughs> Okay. <laughs> he wanted to make a, a like bootleg Scooby-Doo, right? Right. Yeah. And at the same time, he had, I think, reconnected with an old friend from where he is from, which happens to be Tuskegee, Alabama. And ah. this old friend uh, got arrested when they were in college. And mm -hmm. Jewel... Taylor had, had said he had admittedly over the years always kind of had this opinion like, well, that guy, he had so much potential, you know, kind of mm -hmm. wasted it getting arrested like he did. Sure fucked up that chance. I, I'm putting words in his mouth, but yeah, he clearly he, he says like he had kind of written him off or had judged him for getting arrested. Mm -hmm. And then when he caught up with him again, it turns out the friend had been suffering from chronic depression during that time. Oh. Yikes. And had no, did not have the words, did not have the vocabulary or the experience to talk to anyone about it, right? Hmm. And that got Taylor thinking about the ways in which people are and aren't responsible for their fates in the Black community. Like hmm. what outside forces are at work? What are the structural limitations of what you can do within that community? Mm -hmm. And that's when the conspiracy kind of boiled to the top so mm -hmm. it, it's interesting and also he says of course then you know he's from tuskegee so it's hard not to and to be fair some conspiracies are real on that's the the other yeah thing. i yeah. did a whole episode uh, on the black community and conspiracy theories on my old mm -hmm. podcast and mm -hmm. it, it is one of those things like <laughs> there's been a lot of conspiracies that are real when it comes yeah. to black americans so mm -hmm. yeah it makes sense. It, it makes sense of the world. I want to just say a couple things about 
the film and in his perspective on it. Because you and I, before we start taping, we're talking about the stereotypes. And it's, I mean, that's what the movie is about. It's like, a riff it's, it's- on the black exploitation. I mean, let's be very clear. It's a riff on the black exploitation genre. The three main characters in this movie are a drug dealer, a pimp, and a prostitute. Yes. So he got asked this in a Times interview, and I just want to read his answer. I think it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Were you ever concerned about per- being perceived as promoting negative images of black people? And he says, I mean, that's inescapable. Some of this stuff makes me uncomfortable. So I know some other people are going to be uncomfortable. We've had test screenings where people said, I understand that it's satire. I just don't like seeing it. And I think that's fair. But you have to make peace with that if you're going to explore the subject. The second you have anyone eating fried chicken on screen, you're in somewhat of a danger zone. I legit know people who say, I don't eat chicken in front of white people. And I will say I've had that said to me by black friends before too. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know a way to explore this stuff without putting images on the screen. Hopefully this is a story and these are characters that people will engage with. And if you do, you might see that some of these stereotypes are deconstructed and there are more than meets the eye. Mm-hmm. But if that's not your experience, who am I to tell you you're wrong? I don't want people to think there's only one way for this movie to be interpreted. So I think that's pretty important to know his intentions going in. Yeah, and also, like, you know, again, I, I don't think I like this film quite as much as you did on it, but I also, I'm not so, I wasn't so opposed to I certainly wasn't offended by it. And, you know, making a movie where you're desperately trying not to offend anyone is a movie <laughs> that will wind up being probably somewhat boring. So, you know, that, that I have no problem with. I will say, I, I happened to notice that interview in the Times was conducted by a black journalist, and it made me think there is a layer of meaning to this film that's probably unavailable to us. Just, that, just note that. That is entirely possible, and I think we need to sort of concede that uh, that point up front. That is yeah. entirely fair. Yeah. Well, now that we have conceded what we need to concede. Yes. <laughs> Let's move on to Chekhov's What's It, the thing that occurs or appears in the first act that becomes important later on. Dan. Chekhov's wig, Anna. I like which that. Which was kind of important, and I, I actually thought pretty subtle, which is in a film that is not always very subtle. <laughs> I, I also was somewhat surprised by that reveal. Yeah, yeah. And I would say Chekhov's rival drug dealer, <laughs> which is almost a Chekhov's gun. I mean, he fired. he has a gun, so it's, you know... Chekhov's yeah. firing of the gun. So yeah, Chekhov's firing of a gun. That's what it yes. is. It's yes. Chekhov's firing of a gun. Yes. I like that. He would probably okay. like that. <laughs> I do like, like that. A little twist. Yes. All right, okay. Dan, now let's talk about that plot that's filled with stereotypes. All right, let's get to act one, a day in the life of a Fontaine. Meet Fontaine, a drug dealer in the Glen who sticks to his routine. He tries to take care of his mother, who sticks to her room mourning the death of Fontaine's younger brother. A kid from the neighborhood, Junebug, provides him with tips on his competitor, Isaac. Junebug also pesters him to become part of the operation. Fontaine lifts weights, then buys his scratcher, and is 40. One evening, he seeks out Slick Charles, a pimp who owes him money. His girl, Yo-Yo, tells Fontaine where he is. Fontaine gets his money, goes back into this car, but then gets capped by <laughs> Isaac. I'm sorry, like that. Uh, listeners, Otto and I had a conversation a, before a, this. A cap busted in his ass, Dan. I mean, if ever there was an appropriate use of the term "capped," I think it was that scene where he really does get shot. I also times. have a personal rule about white people using African American vernacular, which is is that African American vernacular? I really mean that sincerely. Okay. I would, but the important thing is you say it in as white a voice as possible. <laughs> Why, thank you, Anna. Yes, yeah, so that yes. you don't sound like you're appropriating. You're just like saying, you know, yes. you're, you're kind of acknowledging like your own whiteness and doing it. So anyway. absolutely. Thank you for performing right. whiteness there, Dan. No problem. The next morning, a seemingly unharmed Fontaine wakes up again and goes about his day. Everything's normal until he gets his 40 and sees a man stumbling down the street, which maybe could be him. It's not really clear. And then that guy is grabbed by some dudes in a black SUV. Fontaine confronts Slick Charles, who swears that he gave Fontaine his money yesterday just before Fontaine got shot and that Yo-Yo can corroborate all of this. Yo-Yo confirms that she heard shots and then saw a black SUV leaving the scene and she knows where that SUV went. The three of them drive there and find a trap house with an elevator that leaves underground. 
Anna, this has to be intentional, but one of the confusing, nay, disorienting things about this film, at least the first part of it, is that the time and place are left extremely vague. So we don't know where the Glen is. I have to admit, my this probably says more about me than anything else. My default assumption was that it was Detroit. But the time period is even more confusing because there's times where it seems like the 1970s, but then we see cell phones, there's references to SpongeBob, there's references to Obama. And I guess my question is, why do this? It's part of the conspiracy, Dan. <laughs> Just a spoiler alert, we're going to talk about the conspiracy. I also thought it might be Chicago, but I think the indeterminate nature of both the time period and the place is very intentional. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because it's a commentary on how things don't change. Yeah, right? I guess. I, one of the, the, they clone people, so things don't change, Dan. I mean, like, right. that's how important it is that things don't change, is that the literally the people stay the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only thing I'll add here, and maybe this is interesting. I don't know if you have the same experience. Having like an unnamed city, like that's common to a lot of movies. Like I'm not surprised by that. But the time period being unclear, that was much more disorienting to me. And I'm wondering if like you've I think it's supposed to be, Dan. Right. I really do. That Mm -hmm. is part of the conspiracy that this community is kind of unmoored from time and a little bit from geography because it's replicated in all these places because it can be controlled if it's replicated. Mm -hmm. I also think there might be at least a little bit of truth to that portrayal because like this is, there's no way, huh? How do I put this? (laughs) I have been in communities that resemble the Glen. Mm. for various reasons my life Mm -hmm. has taken me yeah friends colleagues Mm -hmm. and you will see a kind of mix of decades and technologies yeah i again maybe this is part of it is because i'm not most of it for me is actually the furniture (laughs) yeah yeah but i I can kind of imagine that time warp like you don't throw things away that are perfectly good True. I I think, and part of this is, I admit, I'm not thrilled with what the overall revealed conspiracy is for a variety of reasons. But I think part of it is also is that, I mean, we both, you know, lived in the south side of Chicago, which could be, there are parts of that that could in some ways be this area. It's one of the places that I've been among folks who live in that area. But I will add, that place did change even in the time that I was living there. And so that's where I get, It was allowed to change, Dan. Oh, there we go. Because they do say they 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 make a point of saying not every black community is under their control. Yes, yes, they do. That's true. So, I mean, I'm not. I'm doing a little bit of work for the movie. It's true, right? And I think, by the way, this is one of the tells that I think that I didn't quite like this as much as you did, which is you're doing more work for the movie than I am am willing to do. But I take your point on this one. I I think that he's made a pretty ambitious movie, and I'm willing Mm -hmm. to help movies that are ambitious. And I think that is worn out by the way that we we talk about stuff in general like i think okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair <laughs> if you're taking a big swing i will help you take that big swing that's true <laughs> whether it's vin diesel or yep Jill T- yeah okay yep. all right let's get to act two every conspiracy you think is true is true the elevator leads to a vast underground complex where an awful lot of white people seem to be conducting experiments on it they confront one white guy with an afro who confirms that a lot of shit is going down. Slick helps himself to some unidentified white powder. They also see a corpse that looks identical to Fontaine. Slick accidentally shoots the lab tech and they vamoose out of there. The next morning, Fontaine brings his crew to the trap house, but the elevator is gone now. Fontaine seeks out Yo-Yo for advice. They go to a goddamn chicken joint for some comfort food, and Slick recognizes that the patrons are all having the same laughing reaction that he did to the mysterious white powder in the lab. That's just the first of many vehicles for drugs they notice. There's stuff in the grape drank, Anna. (laughs) And in the hair products. (laughs) These drugs seem to drain all the outrage from their test subjects and subject them to mind control. This becomes important when they infiltrate the underground complex again through a black church with a very atypical sermon. Well, interesting. We should talk about whether or not that sermon is atypical, actually. 
That's a fair point. Okay. Wearing hazmat suits, they get a better sense of the scale of the Enterprise. They exit through a strip club, and a DJ uses a song to mind-whammy the crowd into chasing after them. A white man named Nixon, that's just a great name, just like, you know, no notes, 10 out of 10. And a Fontaine clone named Chester show up. Nixon exposits that the man is conducting experiments on inner city black populations like the Glen to help pacify the country, I think. That's unclear. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, that, that was part where it started. Wave, a bit. I'm waving hands. Yeah. I'm just okay. like All waving right. them, creating a, a whole like airstream there we with, go. with my hands. But Nixon uses a trigger word, Olympia Black, that immobilizes Fontaine and Slick and threatens to use it on them again if they don't shut up about what they've seen. Anna, this film is a conspiracy theorist's wet dream. There's just no other way to put it. But can we talk about how it's a conspiracy that seems to have a whole bunch of holes? As I said, Nixon's explanation for the purpose of it doesn't make a ton of sense. And for that matter, the relative competency oh, of the conspiracy is... Yeah, it has all the problems that conspiracies do, right? Yes. Yeah. In other words, it, it's, it's a half-assed conspiracy theory, I guess would be the way to put yeah, most it. Most conspiracies and, can't explain everything. Right. But the way I always think about it is that, you know, the little bit I've studied of conspiracy theories is often that the way conspiracy theories respond to this is by saying that just is part of the larger conspiracy. And in some ways that's absent from the way this film works. But I guess I I guess what got me out of the film was, in fact, the the sort of unclear nature of the conspiracy theory, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And it is not even really attempted mm-hmm. to make it cohere. Like if right. you go on a QAnon bulletin board or whatever, a QAnon thread somewhere, you will see a lot more work being done <laughs> to make it all make sense. Right? Like you I'm sorry. I I've I've I'm almost scared to say this out loud, but I can picture like the QAnon theorist saying, you know what the difference is between white conspiracy yeah, theories I- and conspiracy theories sure. the white conspiracy theories have the details down well, so they're true that would be yes, the, that would be the thing yeah, a yeah. QAnon person yeah, would say yeah. yeah that's absolutely true yeah and in general i think people who believe in conspiracy theories if they're true believers do a lot mm-hmm. more work than this movie does right that's a good way of putting it yes this movie the conspiracies are just gestured at Right. The biggest hole is probably why it's happening. Mm-hmm. Although at the same there time, is another big hole, which is not to give anything away, but like if Nixon could just say one word that immobilizes the whole population, it the last act goes unexplained. In yeah, that it's. It, 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 <laughs> yeah. I again the hands the hands okay. just the waving waving waving. I think though, mm-hmm. part of it might be on purpose. I shouldn't yeah, say on that's purpose. Fair. I think that one of the things that Taylor is doing here is making a commentary on the prevalence of conspiracy theories in black communities. Mm-hmm. And I am only putting this theory forward, I need to be very clear, because in interviews he's talked about the problem of responsibility versus blame. Hmm. And how responsible are people for their own plight? Mm-hmm. And then the big twist, <laughs> yes, has like a whole like Cosby-sized spoonful of respectability <laughs> politics. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I'm laughing at the Cosby-sized thing because am I wrong? That, like, works on, no, the Cosby it works on multiple <laughs> levels on it. So yes, go ahead. <laughs> Yes. There is just a huge reference. I don't know if the film is endorsing it, but there is a gesture towards responsibility politics, approving gesture. I see. This politics. is where I'm. Not, this is might be another reason why I wasn't as high on the film as you are, which is I'm not sure that Taylor quite has a grasp on the message he's trying oh, to say. I'm I'm doing a fair amount of work here. Okay, and that's but that's part of like. <laughs> That's part of, I think, what aggravates me about it is that I, it, it, I wanted a slightly more coherent theme, and I don't think it's there. Well, you know, the thing is, part of my grad school training, Dad, is that oh, a filmmaker doesn't have to have done this consciously for it to be meaningful. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> totally fair. That is a yeah. big thing we learned in graduate school, not your <laughs> graduate school, my graduate school. Uh-huh. 
yeah. structuralist literary criticism, Dan. Damn, listeners. What the author wants. I'm just <laughs> dropping the grad school mic on me. Okay, keep going. Does the author is irrelevant. Text has its mind of its own. <laughs> and I do think this is, in a way, a commentary. And he does have some grasp on, like, the respectability politics. That oh, is sure, yeah. Yeah, that, and also his he's intending to make some kind of comment on how much responsibility do people have for their own mm-hmm. position, right? Yeah. Although so, it, we'll we'll get to this when we talk about the IR part. This is I'm not sure. I think he's trying to say something. I'm just not sure the the takeaway is what he's intended it to be. Oh, I I totally agree. And when yeah. I say he's trying to say something, that's mm-hmm. it. Like I don't yeah. know if he's fully figured out what he wants to say. Yeah. Like. Yeah. He's just like, I think this is interesting about respectability mm-hmm. politics versus, yeah. you know, structural oppression. And I, I want to make, I just want to point out to people <laughs> the tension. Honestly, that's probably as far as he got is he, yeah. him knowing that there's a tension between those two things and wanting to say that. But I don't mm-hmm. know if he falls on a side. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, that's a that's a nice way of putting it. That's fair. I think he falls maybe a little bit on the side. I mean, I shouldn't. The film falls on the side of respectability politics, I think. Huh. We'll talk about this more later. Anyway, I wouldn't be saying this part of the thing if I didn't see some of that in the rest of the film, which is to say, like, the fact that the conspiracy theories don't cohere is perhaps a commentary on how you can't just blame conspiracy theories. I I agree with you. I think that that might be one of that. There, I did get that sort of. That's intentional. Element. I do think that's yeah. that is intentional. That, I agree. That has to be intentional. Yes. Otherwise, yeah. it's very bad filmmaking. So yeah. I yeah. Agree. No. It's otherwise it's very bad conspiracies. Like they have yeah. to not totally make sense because right. if you only bl- if you think everything's a conspiracy, then you're not taking any responsibility. I could yeah. have said everything I just said in that sentence instead of <laughs> go on and on. I just. But realized. then we wouldn't. But th- then our sparkling repartee would not have. You know. Trust me, the listeners are happy about this. Right. Um, I do think he succeeded in making a good Scooby-Doo movie. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right, let's get to Act 3. Let's Nancy Drew this shit. Yo-Yo wants to go public and tell the world what they've seen. Fontaine and Slick are, frankly, too depressed and scared after seeing their doppelgangers to help. Yo-Yo goes on Nancy Drew to send a dossier to the Washington Post, but the man... Dan, gra- Dan, Dan. Yeah? yeah, She goes all Woodward and Bernstein. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yo-Yo goes all Woodstein to send a dossier to the Washington Post, but the man grabs her when she tries to mail her findings. They take her to the underground lab and start applying their hair product to her. Meanwhile, Fontaine discovers that his mother, who we have never actually seen, is actually just a voice on a tape recorder delivering chat GPT responses. Slick comes up with a plan to rescue Yo-Yo. With the help of Isaac, the competing drug dealer, Fontaine fakes his death, so he'll be taken to the underground lab undetected. Slick and Isaac, in turn, organize the Glen to storm the lab once Fontaine gets a lab worker to open the doors. They free all the black people being experimented on, including the clones. Yo-Yo frees herself when it turns out that they were applying their hair product to her wig and not her actual hair. Which, by the way, was a great reveal. I was legit yep. surprised by that. Yeah. Yep. Should we talk about how commentary on how white people don't understand black hair? Yeah, exactly. No, no, no. I was surprised by that. I was like, you idiot. Why are you surprised by that? Because like, totally fair. Anyway, should we talk about how white people are portrayed in this film? Because there is a lot of stereotyping. There's no other way to put it. I really did laugh. There's a there's a small little scene where two white techs are talking about boiling chicken. To bring Don't out the natural flavors. Don't want to ruin it with salt and pepper. But that said, as a white person who loves spicy food, I was also just a little bit offended by that. I don't know. Like, I, I recognize it's punching up, but still. And also, it's it's all stereotypes. In this yeah, that's movie. fair. So it would be okay, weird that's if, like, white yeah. people were the only people not stereotyped. That is, that's, a, that's an <laughs> outstanding counterpoint, because it's true. Yes, yes. And white people are weird about spices. Some not all white people. Okay, so Dan, quick story. I used to live in Nebraska. My dad taught University of Nebraska, and Mm -hmm. you know we're both from Texas. And one time we asked, or my dad asked, probably, where is the best Mexican food in town? Where can we get (laughs) authentic Mexican food here in Lincoln, Nebraska? Dan, do you know where this story is going? (laughs) Is the answer Taco Bell? No, the answer is ketchup. 
because oh, what happened? <laughs> we asked for red sauce. Oh. We asked for hot sauce. Okay. They brought and us they ketchup. ketchup. Okay. And it was run by white people also. That should be part of the okay. story. Is that I don't know if I ever... Tex-Mex restaurant that we were recommended as having the best Tex-Mex in town. <laughs> they considered ketchup to be their hot sauce. Now, that is just where I go whenever anyone tries to argue with the white people don't understand spices. I'm like, maybe, maybe we don't. Have you tried British food, Dan? Oh, God. No, all right. So now I'm going to tell you two stories. <laughs> This is fair. The first is, is that the year I lived in Ukraine, I eventually managed to sort of collect and gather the ingredients to make chili. Right. And like, I'm, yeah, exactly. Wow. Like, you know, that, I mean, what? I'm, I'm impressed. Well, I mean, like, to be clear, it's like, I, I, I bought spice packets, like in a dollar store. So like, I was able to sort of do this. And I was delighted about this. I invited my fellow Americans who were fellow lecturers in the city to come. I also invited my Ukrainian friends. The Americans were all like, oh, my God, this is so good. Like they hadn't had, you know, there is no spice in Ukrainian cuisine by and large. They were like devouring it. The Ukrainians all had like one spoonful and that was it. They were not touching it after that. But the British thing reminds me that when I was living in Boulder once, we we had a British friend who came over and, you know, had a problem with spicy cuisine. And so like we, we particularly kept it as bland as possible. She still was complaining that it was too spicy, at which point one of our friends just snapped, that's salt. <laughs> <laughs> so I think what we're seeing here is there is truth to the stereotype, and okay. this is a movie about stereotypes. Stereotypes, yeah. I liked the appearance of the electric scooter in the <laughs> That was funny, yes, I agree. That was quite good. I did like that. Let's go with Act 4, A Time for Silent Self-Discovery. Chester overpowers Fontaine and takes him to the original version of Fontaine, who is actually a geneticist working for the man. Fontaine explains that he had agreed to work for them in terms of figuring out the proper way to deliver the drugs in return for his own experiments. He's decided to collaborate because, quote, assimilation is better than annihilation, and he is planning to create racial peace by literally whitewashing black people into white people through selective mind control and generational breeding. Young Fontaine ain't having it and uses the Olympia Black trigger word to control Chester and have him kill the elder Fontaine. Meanwhile, Nixon gets into a shootout with Yo-Yo and Slick, but dies when he mistakes a clone wearing Slick's clothes for him, not realizing that Slick has gone and gotten another gun. The news covers all the naked clones who emerge into the Glen, exposing the secret operation. Yo-Yo announces her retirement from sex work, and Slick and Fontaine agree to head with her to Memphis to further expose and stop the man's operation. Meanwhile, in a post credit scene in Los Angeles, a man named Tyrone wakes up and looks and lives pretty much exactly like Fontaine in the Glen. While with his friends, the news coverage of the Glen pops up as one of Fontaine's clones appears on television, and they all realize that Tyrone is a clone of Fontaine. I know, weirdly, I thought the ending wasn't cynical enough. Or let me put it this way. I was kind of surprised by the news coverage of, you know, the sort of clones walking around on the Glen. I was expecting the man to perhaps shape that news coverage to white explain it away, as it were. So in that sense, I was a little surprised. Although maybe they're setting things up for a sequel. I don't know. I don't think there's going to be a sequel. No, I no, no. kind of agree with you. Yeah. I think this is one of the places where this script being written by a fairly young screenwriter who perhaps has not fully developed all of his ideas mm -hmm. might be a part of the story. Yeah. And who, by the way, I think the other reason I'm willing to do a lot of work for this movie is I think they had a blast making it. I think that this was <laughs> one of those movies that people really wanted to work on. In fact, from what I've seen of the interviews and stuff, although all the interviews had to take place before the strike. <laughs> yeah. It seems to be like this was a project, not just not just swinging big, but like mm -hmm. loving it. Like this is like a, a something he really wanted to do. And I I keep going back to the fact that his original idea was how can I make a Scooby-Doo movie? <laughs> and that I feel like explains a lot of the stuff that doesn't quite work. Although some of the stuff that doesn't quite work, I do think is intentionally not, not working. Right. working. Mm -hmm. I want to point out that there is a kind of montage of black news 
anchors and white news anchors doing coverage of the clones. I don't know if you noticed that. I did, but I maybe maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention. I wasn't sure if I caught any distinction between the coverage. Oh, oh, Dan, you should go back and there? watch it again. Okay, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, the white people are like, this, like, it's sort of a, I mean, I hate to do it, but have yeah. you ever, like, the Tracy Jordan white people be like from <laughs> 30 Rock? Yes. <laughs> it's a very white people be like kind right, of, like, distinction, right. you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. In some ways, I think it's an uncynical movie. I guess, yeah, fair enough. In some ways, I think it's a fairly sincere movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other thing I want to say, I think this is worth some discussion, so I'll point it out here and not in Debris Field. Yo-Yo does a full-on code switch at one point. (laughs) You and I talked about this, right? Yeah, It's when making the argument that we need to go all Nancy Drew on this. Right. And she goes into white vernacular like just completely and it's in the middle of it Mm -hmm. and it's not there's no attention called to it Mm -hmm. and i think that's interesting yeah (laughs) again i'm not sure what we're supposed to take from it Mm -hmm. it's very intentional Mm -hmm. and maybe it's one of those things that our ability to like access the meaning of this movie is not quite there. I mean, the you know, the obvious, I think the, the the way I would infer it is that what she's trying to tell Fontaine is, look, we're going to have to deal with white people to get this exposed. Yeah. But but you're right. The fact that she doesn't, the fact that it just happens and it's not like announced, as it were, is, I think, the most interesting part of it. So that's, yeah. Uh, we're going to discuss some other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I have a question. Oh, please ask away. Is there IR in this movie? Damn, Anna, let an IR pimp freshen up, okay? Okay. There is clip mo- that one. Gonna, <laughs> gonna clip that audio and put it on the internet, Dan. <laughs> okay. Yep. yep. <laughs> there is definitely some IR in this film. In fact, the film touches, I think, on one of the deepest questions in IR, which is or in political science more generally, which is the structure agency debate. So there are some IR scholars who argue that even in a world of anarchy, agents can choose how to behave, whether cooperatively, competitively, constructively, or what have you. And that furthermore, it's how these agents collectively decide to behave that helps to determine the larger structures that wind up in turn conditioning the agents. So in other words, in in terms of a chicken egg problem, it starts with the agents. There are other IR scholars and I would put realists in, in this category, but also interestingly enough, like postmodernists and constructivists who argue that the structures are so powerful that they in fact condition agents to behave in a particularly consistent way, thereby entrenching these structures even further. I think, and this might be, how do I put this on it? I think most of the film actually weighs in decidedly on the structure side. Of course, the, yeah. The, the third act of the film tries to suggest, no, they actually have agency. But I like the film's heart is on the structure side. When Fontaine literally says at mm. one point, I ain't got no say in this shit, you know, he's actually making an extremely powerful structuralist argument stating that he's been stripped of any agency and therefore should just play his role as written. He should just be the drug dealer. Yeah, I I think it's more complicated than that. Okay. I, I, do tell. I think he, I I think as we were talking about before, I'm not sure if Taylor really knows what side he wants the film to fall on. Right. But I'm telling you that the film is, I believe this way. And to, I as don't you think put the it, film, because I think that all those holes in the conspiracy theory and mm-hmm. also the third act, it's not just yeah. the third act that implies agency. Right. It's the fact that the conspiracy theories aren't complete, that there's some complicity in the mm-hmm. community. Like it, it, maybe again, I'm, I'm helping too much yeah i am being a white savior here i'm like (laughs) i think the the other way in which i think that it i I agree with you that maybe taylor and the film are trying to suggest that agency can matter the problem is is that it it's straining real hard on that side whereas i think some of the most the more the parts of the film that work really well are the parts that suggest it's actually deeply structural that is the way i think i would put it i i i kind of i I think I, I'm not arguing that it's maybe saying it's actually agency. Mm-hmm. I think 
as I said before, there is just a lot of tension there. Yeah. And I don't yeah. know if Taylor knows mm -hmm. which side he falls on. And indeed, yeah. can't we say that it's impossible to make that determination? No one knows. I mean, oh, there are people not. that say they believe one or the other. Right. But I don't think I, I can tell you definitely one or the other. Dan, do you have a really strong opinion that it's definitely one or the other? I... From from I, I'm not going to comment this is on what a question, Taylor this thinks. Is a geological question. Or no, no, no. I'm not going to. I'm not going to comment on what Taylor thinks. I think what I'm trying to no, say you. is you. I'm trying to say you. Do you? Because because I don't oh, know if it's oh. possible to completely say it is all structure. No, no. no look for this way. I am in my own sort of. Look this way. As an IR theorist, no, I'm yeah. not a structuration. No, I'm absolutely not a structuralist. And I think in some ways that that might be why I'm reacting to the film the way I am because like yeah. the film, I think gives off a much more, a much deeper structuralist vibe than I am personally, you know, ha you know, would, would be as content with. But uh, the point being that actually it's very hard for films, I think, to take the structuralist side. This might be the other thing that I'm reacting to, which is most films by definition are about protagonists making decisions. They're about epiphanies. They're about protagonists, you know, changing right. and so on and so forth, which means that the very inherent nature of narrative as we understand it tends to be stacked on the side of agency. Yeah. It is very hard to tell a narrative or, journey. We're yeah. all main characters. It's very hard to tell a story that shows, no, it's actually the structures that are going on. And that's what this film does. So maybe yeah. that's the one thing I'm sort of like complimenting the film for, which is yeah. it's, it's tough to tell a story where you see the structures and this film is definitely doing that. You know, what we talked about that does a graceful job with that is Kindred. Yes. Yes. Kindred. Well, I mean, without in any way impugning a film, Kindred is a much more impactful cohesive. work. Yeah. Cohesive. And Octavia Butler knew what she was trying to do yeah. with that in a way that I don't think Taylor quite And her, this. she has a sort of, I think she, this is where I would say I fall to, which is that yeah. I believe in st structures but that you cannot ignore agency. Yeah. Like yeah. you have to acknowledge agency or else there's no oh, change sure. or else sure. there's like, there's what, no, if you, if you just say, if you're a structuralist, then if you're, you're a, fucking if, doomed. <laughs> no, if you're a structuralist all the way down, you wind up becoming essentially a nihilist because you're saying yeah. there's no hope in, in resisting. But what's interesting is the way that in which Taylor talks about agency there, there's some interesting ways he talk, or there, there's some interesting ways he talks about it, and there's some very subversive ways he's talking about it. Oh yeah, as you say, it goes back to this sort of you know responsibility politics, as it were, and so that that's interesting. Yeah. But speaking of of structures, uh, I have a question for you, Hunter. Yes, Dan. Is there a critique of capitalism in this film, Dan? There ain't no easier mark than a sucker seeing what he expects to see. And call me a sucker <laughs> because I was expecting a critique of capitalism. And by God, Dan, I think there is one. Did you did you pick it up? I did, but I also want to say that what you just said was possibly the whitest you have ever sounded. So well done on that. Well done. Well, I am pretty fucking white, Dan. Yeah, yeah, totally fair. Yep, yep. Yeah, and I, I so I, you may not have picked this up, but. Mm -hmm. The Glen was made docile by mindless consumption. Whoa, whoa! What it's I, right I, there? It's I, kind I, of <laughs> what I'm saying is it's it's not just right there. It's literally like a five minute. It's almost like a montage sequence where it's like, yeah. no, not just the chicken. It's everything. You yeah. know? Yeah. I, I do think it's a funny way of making that critique. And mm -hmm. I think the particular products that they make associated with the drug are not just stereotypically associated with black people, but I would say they touch on ways in which structural inequality works and white supremacy works. The mm -hmm. most obvious one being the hair straightener. Right? Yeah. 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 But I also think the grape drink and the fried <laughs> chicken are, I mean, mm -hmm. don't, you can laugh if you want, but there is a problem with obesity and heart disease in African-American communities. Sure. And I, I don't know how, again, if Taylor's trying to say that, but it's there. Yeah. Like, those things are there. I, but the real interesting critique of capitalism in this movie is actually not the consumerism. It's really more on the labor side. Ooh. The play acting they do so that they can organize their plan 
is a parody of the jobs that are available to black people in those yes. communities. I, I confess, I'm not sure if I was supposed to enjoy this quite as much as I did, but like where you see the prostitutes sort of fake doing what you're expecting them to be doing so they can actually have the dialogue. That was actually quite funny, I thought. They're pretending to deal drugs. Yes. They're pretending to be performing sex acts, right? right? Mm-hmm. And it's all in the service of subverting the dominant paradigm, right? right. They're taking back their labor. They're not giving, they're not letting the man take their labor. And mm-hmm. they're using the expected structure of oppression mm-hmm. to liberate themselves, literally liberate themselves, Dan. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't know how much is intentional, but there's some kind of historical precedent for this in terms of how Black people communicated with each other during chattel slavery and whatnot. Like, mm-hmm. there were ways in which Black people were able to create communicate lines of communication lines of communication that Mm -hmm. were hidden Mm -hmm. from white people, right? Right. There's also a very funny line that I think I referenced before where Kiefer Sutherland says, the reason why the Glen is the way that it is, is that if they didn't have control over it, it would become gentrified and there would be two Starbucks here by Tuesday. (laughs) It's a funny line. Mm -hmm. Appreciate it. Yeah. It's one of the places where the conspiracy doesn't work. Right. (laughs) (laughs) because capitalism would love to have that area gentrified. It does not work in capitalism's favor to keep that area, that particular area poor. What works in capitalism's favor is to keep pushing those people out and out and out and out Mm -hmm. and to price them out of places. So that's just a note. Mm -hmm. At least one review made a very explicit connection to Ella Baker, who was an uh, NAACP organizer in the 60s, and she developed a theory of group-centered leadership, which, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, like there's doing work for the film and there's doing work for the film. That, I believe the person writing the review was doing work, like labor for the film, right? (laughs) Like like doing so much work they should get paid. Yes, exactly. Don't don't give your labor away like that. Yeah, yeah. The evidence in this person's piece was that the places where the drugs are distributed, like the key players in the conspiracy are all like headed by black men. Hmm. So the church, you know, drug dealing, I guess. I don't know. Like, I don't quite, joint. I think that's wrong. I that's, don't think that quite holds up because the chicken joint is like a, it's a, there's a white guy or sort of a white guy. He's one of the, he's I, one of the experiments, but yeah. I it's do think there is a way that if I wanted to do even more work for the film, like I could find <laughs> a layer of toxic masculinity being in place. Totally. Fa- well, let me put it this way. What's interesting, I, I think the thing that's legitimately- It wouldn't take that much work, actually. Like, it, as soon as I say it, you see it, right? Right. But also, what's legitimately interesting to me is that when Nixon utters the Olympia Black thing, it's the men who are frozen. Yo-Yo yeah. is the only one who isn't. And that I, that I did think was interesting. And I noted, I believe when they show us the clones for the first time, they're all men. At yes, the they are. At the end of the movie, there are some women right. among the clones. But that's correct. I, think that within the logic of the movie they're men and frankly they this is again where i don't think the film this is attention to detail i don't think there should have been female clones i think it would have made more sense if there was only male clones i think the argument of the movie is stronger yes exactly and more accurate correct yes (laughs) if it makes all of the clones men i completely then you also you do a very explicit commentary on toxic yeah exactly Yeah, yeah yeah so Discorded notes. This is where we take questions from the Discord from our patrons and answer them in the podcast. And there was a lot of commentary about this film, but really not a lot of questions. But I think I I stuck with Dan Bren's question because it's it's and it's not even so much a question, but it's one that's worth affirming, which is how good is this cast? And on, I think this is something where we do, we are in complete agreement, which is I the strength of this movie is the cast, like in particular mm-hmm. John Boyega, Tayona Paris does good work, Jamie Fox is Jamie Fox, like that's actually an underwritten role, and mm-hmm. he imbues it with with something deeper, which was impressive. To a certain degree, they're all underwritten, right? Which is kind of the point. Or I, think. I shouldn't say yeah. they're underwritten. What I would say is the performances elevate them beyond what they're written. Yes, with. that that's a f- and and Boyega in particular because. He, uh, his lines are not special. No, like, not in the slightest. His it, lines are not special. 
but from the moment he's on screen, yeah, you know that character. Like, the- there's a depth to that character. It's so strange. You know, I, I, the wonder of acting is fascinating. Yeah. The way I would put it with Boyega is is simple, which is he also plays Chester, who is like the sort of doppelganger hitman. I don't think Chester has any lines, and yet Chester radiates menace and like th- there's like a whole character there that Boyega does with just his body language, his facial expressions. Like it, it again, and like you give him some dialogue as you do with Fontaine, he's just fucking electric. I mean, it, it's it's he's incredibly good in this movie. He he conveys the world weariness. Yeah the corruption but also the morality like right. the like taking care of his mom you believe yeah. him when he's heartbroken yes when he breaks yes. into his what he thinks is his mother's room i i get a little teary thinking i mean honestly yeah. like yeah. he you believe him that his heart is broken like mm-hmm. when he realizes that he just doesn't have a mom right and also the way he cares about junebug i would add yep you know also again like he, he's as i the way I would put it is I want to see John Boyega in a good sci-fi franchise. I think he elevates the material here. And the comparison, we talked about this right before we started recording. I, I think there's a valid comparison to make between Boyega in this in this movie and Florence Pugh in Don't Worry, Darling. Florence yeah. Pugh, you cannot take your eyes off her in that movie. A movie that in the end is disappointing on multiple levels. And that was... Listen not, to our episode about it. Yes, exactly. But he, but she is transcendent. It. She's fantastic. In it. And that is the same way I feel about Boyega in this. I want him in a good sci-fi franchise. And by that, I mean, not more Star Wars films. Find something else that he can star in because he's a really good goddamn actor. And he he deserves material that that he can do something. I was going to say, like, Tiona Paris, of course, is in a Marvel movie. And right. I would wish a Marvel movie upon Boyega, except mm-hmm. I think that's also a curse. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what franchise he needs, but. He definitely needs a franchise. And I will just say, again, all three leads, everyone. Actually, the actor who plays Isaac, Mm -hmm. I think, was particularly good. J. Alphonse Nicholson. Yes. I did did like when he was trying to, like, get his lines right for for really fake acting. That was very funny. It was fantastic. I mean, every role, I think, everyone's bringing their A game. Mm -hmm. It is the thing that elevates this film. I think there are a lot of problems with it. I found it charming. Yeah. Is I, what I would say is I was charmed by this movie in a way that it is impossible to be charmed by. <laughs> like, Don't worry, darling. Don't worry, darling. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. I, like, I, I think the films are a little more parallel than, than maybe you do, partially because there were strengths in Don't Worry, Darling, not just oh, Lawrence Pugh's performance. They did sort of similar arguments. Chris Pine, the, the set decor, all of that is amazing in that movie. Like, there are strengths in both of these films, and there are also obvious glaring weaknesses. On the acting, by the way, I agree with you. Also, Kiefer Sutherland is clearly having a time oh. of his life playing this role. And it, it is like, I, I did like the touch of casting him because particularly it's it's a way I think he can kind of subvert his 24 persona and a designated survivor persona. So that was good. And I loved when they mentioned Kevin Bacon. There's a look on his yes. face. Like, <laughs> that, was, that was a nice little in-joke. I did like that. I yes. thought that was pretty hilarious. Yeah, yeah. He's good. Everyone's good. Like I said, everyone brings their A-game. This movie would not necessarily fail with lesser actors, but to me- It wouldn't be as enjoyable that's by sure. far. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Pink, 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 What's that? Pink, pink. Oh no! It's like fried chicken bits or something, or powder. <laughs> I don't know. But it's like as though someone swept fried chicken off of a table. There we go. Yeah. It's the debris field. This is where we bring up things that we might have been omitted in our conversation to date, but you know, things that we think are, are worthy of mentioning. Anna, how much do you have? I have a fair amount. I don't know, half a dozen, maybe. Okay. Why don't you start then? Just some good lines that somehow we didn't get to. <laughs> yes. When he uh, Isaac's lieutenant says he's as good as Denzel, and he says <laughs> Training Day Denzel, Book of Eli Denzel. <laughs> yes, he says Book of Eli. So bring that shit up, yeah, or something along yeah, those yeah. lines. Yeah, I've, which was good. Very that was good. good. Mm-hmm. In terms of lines for me, I think I laughed the hardest at Yo-Yo saying "Blockchain, motherfucker." That was Very really good. good. I like Junebug saying you're a real Squidward to, yeah. <laughs> to Fontaine. That was that was pretty amusing. And also both, Fon- you know, I think Fontaine or someone else, you know, saying all Yo-Yo has to do is show them stuff and then she can be on her merry hoeing way. There's a lot of really good lines. There are. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't spelunk. White people spelunk. 
<laughs> that is fantastic. There is a ongoing joke of about sex acts named after famous actors. Yes, which there was never like, get specified. And, and that's I love good. It. that's I where love the last detail. Kind of yes, I agree. Like, I it was it the David Carradine, but I can give you the Susan Sarandon thing. Yeah. yeah, like that's where I don't want anything explained. That's perfect. That's great. This is something like again, the film seems weirdly obsessed with this. And I couldn't quite figure out why, which is they seem to really like the hollow man starring Kevin Bacon. <laughs> and like, I, I mean, like literally like there's clearly like, you know, at one point yo-yo references it and you know, slick is like nodding his head. It's like, yeah, that was a good film. Absolutely solid. I'm not sure why I, I like, you know, I don't think it's a, like an obsession with hollow man. I think it works in that moment because he's invisible. Like she yeah. says, like she's trying to say you're pulling a Kevin Bacon, which is to say you're invisible. Like he mm-hmm. was in the hollow man. Fair and enough. then it sets up the Kevin Bacon reference later. which was funny. Yes. So, eh. I, I don't, I have to assume this is intentional, but there's a point at which Nixon Kiefer Sutherland's character is reading the thing that Yo-Yo attempted to mail to the Washington yes. Post. Yes. And complimenting and he, her. He's complimenting her. And he says multiple loci yeah. rather than loci. And I assume that's <laughs> some enough. kind of reference, some kind of commentary on white people. I don't know. I'm, it was a mispronunciation of a word, but I have to assume maybe I'm just yeah. pointing out that I know how to pronounce that word. I, I think know. that's, well, whatever. <laughs> Again, this is one of these puzzling things that I don't understand. I, one of the things I like about this film is the title. They clone Tyrone is a good title. I don't understand why the protagonist isn't named Tyrone. I, I we, we Tyrone is the LA character, but like technically if they all cloning the main character, wasn't that character's name Fontaine? I don't know. I'm just, you have thoughts about this though. I think you can answer this I question. liked that. Okay. I thought, you know, I, I thought it, it it buys you in, you know, okay. I think it's a kind of a reference to the continuity of the movie and the continuity of the conspiracy. Okay. Fair enough. Let's see. I guess I will say uh, one last thing for my list, which is the point at which Jamie Foxx uh, sniffs the unknown chemicals. Yes. So again, in recovery, uh. I know what desperate looks like. <laughs> I, he didn't strike me as someone who was in that place. Hmm. And <laughs> there's also a point like he tastes it. He knows it's not cocaine. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I just don't go into labs and start sniffing random white That's powder. good advice on it. I think in general, like that was the other thing, like yeah. yo-yo starts mixing chemicals, which yeah. like, again, seemed vaguely weird, but I sure. mean, I appreciate the natural curiosity that they're yeah. doing, but yeah. struck me. I didn't quite see it for their characters. I think they're both smarter than that. I have one last mildly provocative point to make on him. Have you ever seen a film? I think it came out in 2002 starring Eddie Griffin called Undercover Brother. No. There are some disturbing parallels between this film and Undercover Brother, which is a much broader black exploitation comedy in which it turns, you know, Eddie Griffin plays this character, Undercover Brother, who winds up working with the movement to try to expose the workings of the man. And in the, the, the premise of that plot is that the man winds up brainwashing a Colin Powell like figure who is going to run to, for president, but instead he decides to open up a fried chicken joint. And it, it's, let me put it this way. It's, it, there are similar tropes in both films. That one, it is, it is a much broader film. It's played just straightly for laughs. You know, there is no deeper message in that. But it was interesting to me the degree to which the the films actually tracked each other more than I would have expected initially. I will bring up Sorry to Bother You, which this film is compared to a lot. I think we've talked about that, didn't we? We have not, and I would like to. Okay, yeah, yeah, no, I I remember that one, yeah. And of course, the famous Eddie Murphy sketch. Oh, the SNL sketch, which is just fantastic, yes. Yeah. Yes. There's, I mean, he's he's pulling from a lot, and he acknowledges yeah. that mm-hmm. in in the interviews, and that's part of the fun of genre, right? Yeah, Is of that course. you just pull shamelessly from stuff. Yeah. So I think that's about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talked longer than we usually do, which is, or we're back to like over an hour, which yeah. people were noticing. <laughs> oh, were people that, complaining that we weren't delivering enough content? No, that people there was just commentary. Like you can tell whether or not we like something as soon as it shows up in the feed. You don't even have to listen to it. Oh, that's fascinating. It's usually under an hour. <laughs> well, let me put it this way: I, I don't know if that's actually completely accurate. I think there are things where if we do, we don't like it to it, 
the way I would put oh, it no, is... Oh, no, there's things that we don't like that we've gone on and on about. Right, exactly. Before. I would say that there's two kinds of things we don't like. There are things we don't like that, frankly, we are bored by. And then we don't talk all that much about it. But, like, I think, as I said, I didn't like this film quite as much as you did, but I wasn't bored by it. This film raises some interesting questions, and I'm happy to talk about it. And we went on and on about Ministry for the Future. Yeah. Oh, God. No. <laughs> Which I think is one of our better episodes. Yes, I agree. Yeah. I'm yeah. also really looking forward to The Meg and Meg 2. Have you seen <laughs> The Meg? I have seen The Meg. Um, it's been a while. I watched it in the theaters with my, my daughter. Oh, my who, gosh. Wow. Yes, I, yes. Oh, I can go see it in the theater. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, The Meg 2, you're going to have to go see it. I don't know why people aren't talking theaters, about so. Megenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the reason is, is that, you know, the Meg 2 did not come out the same, did not have Barg. the same opening weekend. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, Barbie, I the know. trench. That, 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 that is all, yeah, yeah. All right, we have a lot of good stuff coming up. But until then, keep this channel open for more.